0: And we're ready.
1: Hello, friends. Hello. Instead of welcome, because this is the first episode of one of our secret projects.
0: It's also the first book episode that Rachel and I have done together.
1: On our book club podcast. You know what? I, it's fine. I don't need uh, to that. How long?
0: Nine months? And, um. And to be fair, I have been doing
1: books. You're just a slow reader, and I can't wait for you.
0: You've been doing them with Kate.
1: I know. Well, now we're doing one with you and not just doing any book. What book are we doing, Matthew?
0: And not just the book. This book is just the start. Yeah. This is Dune.
1: This is the tip of an iceberg that would not exist on Dune because there's not enough water.
0: Well, well, there is water. It's just hidden.
1: It's just hidden. So, yeah, Uh, we're going to be doing what we have decided to call a... Deep dive? Deep cut. Deep cut? I think the deep cut. This is Dune, the deep cut. Which means we're not going to be just doing one episode. Oh no. We're going to do the book. We're going to do the next two books. We're going to do every movie adaptation we can get our hands on, including the sci-fi miniseries. And we will be releasing these week by week, hopefully so the last episode coincides with the release of Dune Part 2 in theaters in November. So, we read the book, and We just read the book. You just read the book. I just read the book. And that's what we're going to be talking about this time. And I'm guessing this is going to be at least two parts. Because I don't know if you've seen this book in person, but it is a tome. And there is a heck
0: and chonker. There is not. (laughs) Epic sci (laughs) fi.
1: There is not an inch of wasted text in this entire book. If you skimmed a paragraph, go back and read it. You missed something vital. I guarantee it. So first of all, I want to talk about how good of a writer Frank Herbert is.
0: Absolutely. The, uh, his phrasing, yeah. just the way of describing things definitely stands out. Yeah, even it, after this many years.
1: It feels some of it feels odd, like jarring, but at the same time you know exactly what he's talking about. I think at one point I think at one point he refers to the pastel distance. I looked off into the pastel distance. I've never heard like atmospheric distortion described as the pastel distance. But you get exactly what he's saying. Far enough away that things have, the color has faded out of things. They've become pastel. And you're like, okay, I hear you, Frank Herbert. I know, I get it. I get it. And I would compare the depth of the world and the mythology and the complexity of the mythology that he created for this Dune series to the Lord of the Rings. Oh yeah. Yeah. I think it is, if not close to as large as maybe given more time, he would have created even more in the way that Tolkien created.
0: And I think the, the Herbert estate is in a very similar situation There's there's a lot of parallels between the the Herbert estate and the Tolkien estate. Yeah, where you had this, you know, patriarch that was just a prolific writer, this creator of this universe, where this these stories happen, produced a, you know, fairly in the. I guess looking back in the grand scheme of things, they produced this initial series of books yeah. that ended up being a very small piece of the total history and mythology of that world. And posthumously, their children, grandchildren, or nephews or whatever, have taken on a like a job, a career, yeah. Yeah. of sifting through... But just the piles of unpublished content right. and publishing more books.
1: Compared to what we consider a successful modern writer, both Tolkien and Frank Herbert wrote like nothing, like relatively few books. Right. If you look at Sarah J. which I've been doing with Kate, she's up to like uh, over 10, maybe 12. She's got three ongoing series right now she has put more words on the page for publication than Frank Herbert and Tolkien. But there is a, this is a good example of, this is not to disparage specifically Sarah J. Mass, but there is a difference between I am churning out content for consumption and it's good and it's readable and it's enjoyable. And I am literally reshaping the face of the genre Or creating my own. I don't know what sci fi looked like before Dune, but I know it looks different after. And I don't know what sci fi or what fantasy looked like before Tolkien, because we haven't done that deep cut yet. But (laughs) I don't know what the fantasy looked like before Tolkien, but I know it looks different after. Yeah. And I don't know if Brandon Sanderson, Sarah J. Mass, some of the more prolific modern writers are reshaping the genre in the same way and i think part of that is the sheer depth of dune of dune i mean you read this book and the book itself is like complex it reads like a history book that's readable like a an interesting and enjoyable history book right and you get the sense that there is massive amount of depth that we haven't even scratched the surface of.
0: Right. Even this tome is not disclosing <sighs> the full depths of the world.
1: Right. That we he probably could have kept going indefinitely, which is probably why um, Brian Herbert has so much to work with. Right. And I'm curious. We, we're only going to be covering the first three books in the deep cut. Um, we're going to be doing Dune.
0: Children of Dune. Children
1: of Dune and Dune Messiah, because those are all the ones that have been adapted for television or movies. Um, I think we should continue and read the last three afterwards, because I want to know how different Brian is as a writer than Frank. I want to—I mean, he has like the House Harken and the House of books, right. and I want to know is he as successful in in the way he portrays the characters
0: and he's emulating the writing style,
1: right? So, I mean, we'll get there. But first of all, hi, I'm Rachel, and I'm Matt. Welcome to the Strange and Beautiful Book Club Deep Cut.
0: Dune Edition.
1: Dune Edition. So we have a lot to talk about.
0: Dune, Arrakis, desert podcast.
1: (laughs) Um, I think anybody who's seen the 1980s Dune, every time you saw that italicized in the first section of the book, all you could hear was um, Kyle Lachlan going, Dune, Arrakis, desert planet. (laughs) (laughs) Um, We're not going to talk about any of the movie adaptations right right now. Those will be separate podcast episodes. This is specifically the book. And specifically, we're going to start on part one, because the book is divided into three parts. And so we're going to talk about part one. And part one is like baby Paul on Caladan, all the way to moving to Arrakis and the the rebellion or the taking back of Arrakis by the Baron Harkonnen.
0: Book one is Dune, book two is Muad'Dib, and book three is The Prophet.
1: Okay, so we're going to do book one, Dune. And we start off with um, Paul, and Paul's on Caledon. And Caledon's like a water planet.
0: The opposite.
1: The opposite. It's not like water world, but it's like a, a lush... It's like Earth. Yeah, it's a lush planet. It has a variety of different ecosystems. It has rain, it has oceans, it has Large lakes. Large yeah. um, And they live... I don't know. I always see their their home as the home from the 1987 dune,
0: because that's I don't, like... <laughs> reading this book... So... When I, when I really get into reading, like I sit down, it takes me like, you know, a few minutes, maybe 10, 15 minutes to like really get in. And then it really plays like a movie in my head as I'm reading. Which, experientially, we've learned that lots of people work differently. Like Kate doesn't see it pictures in her head. That's something that we found out about her when Rachel and Kate would talk about the book. So yeah, I know this is a an experience that not everyone would share. But when I'm when, <clears throat> during this reread of Dune, the scenes are playing out in my head. Yeah, and different. I guess I I'd, I'd get d- specific scenes that would the video in my head would be playing like that clip from the 1980s dune yeah 1984 or, i said
1: it wrong i said 1987 okay. it's 1984
0: but then oh when paul does this thing it's from the sci-fi miniseries oh, when that's interesting. <laughs> like that's cause all of
1: we've absorbed a lot of dune content. all the stillgar
0: yeah. scenes are javier bardem
1: of course
0: as, Right?
1: I mean fucking yeah. Oh my yeah. god. Javier Bardem. Ooh, I'm so <laughs> Anytime excited. Anytime I can insert him into a book the, the, like heavy stillgar scenes mm-hmm. in yeah.
0: the next Dune movie. Right. I'm really excited to see Stilgar in there. Um, but I, it's this like collage of all the film adaptations of Dune playing out in my mind's eye yeah. as I'm reading the book and I was trying to make note of who are the prominent depictions of these characters and why, why am I calling up one depiction of a scene from the sci-fi miniseries of Paul doing something versus the 1984 Colin McLaughlin Paul. Yeah. Like when he says, your name is Usul." The strength think at the, the base of the pillar, pillar. Yeah, that's 1984. It's Kyle Yeah, straight.
1: Yes. Yeah. Because they don't say that in the other ones. Right. So I think the reason that we get like a montage in the way you view it is because each different adaptation chose to focus on different things. Right. So the 1984 Dune, for a while it follows the book and then we whoop, veer off a little bit. And then the sci-fi miniseries is probably the most... Um, accurate, accurate. The the one that covered the most because they had three episodes to do it in. Right, and then I think well we haven't seen the full, um, new Dune. Yeah, that we've only seen part one, so we don't know yet how they're gonna how they're gonna do Muad'Dib, how right. they're gonna so, do that section.
0: I think that's part of the inspiration for why we're going to go through the books. Yeah. And all of the film adaptations, right. because all the film adaptations do it slightly differently, and they focus on different aspects of the sp- story. They they highlight or um, focus, emphasize,
1: emphasize. Yes. They
0: emphasize s- certain attributes of the story, right. for that adaptation,
1: right. Um, and so the the book starts really on Caladan, and it jumps us immediately It just dumps us immediately into the lore. Um,
0: info dump. Be-
1: info. I mean, it is, but it isn't because we get like Bene Gesserit. we get Reverend Mother, we get the Gom Jabar, we get like we get immersed in the culture just immediately.
0: And this this style of the like third person writing, yeah, where we are seeing snippets of almost every character's internal monologue. Yeah,
1: third person omniscient.
0: And I think that's why the, like, w- whispery voiceovers in the movie work so right. well. Because yeah. it's... That's how it's written. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway.
1: Um, because we start out, of course, with the Bene Gesserit Reverend Mother has arrived on Caladan. And right. I think the reason I always view this scene in the 1984 set is because I think they best captured the, like, damp heaviness of, like, a night on a planet that's moisture-laden yeah and also the reverend uh lady jessica is like phenomenal phenomenally beautiful in the 1984 one and i i'm always like oof. she she also plays the lady in the web and crawl yes she's just a very striking looking woman
0: okay but well let's
1: i'm sorry i got off but i'm
0: well um i want to just try to set a okay uh a precedent um the premise of this episode, is I know, but I was book, just, and uh, we both keep going off to the well film because you, I had because to finish so why I, I,
1: I, had started why I always use that, and then you went off to talk about all the other stuff, which was fine. But then I wanted to finish my thought about it yeah. was I just felt like that captured it best. Okay. But this is really like we are introduced to the culture and also the mysticism right off the bat. Yes, and the fact that they have been scientifically advanced, they have been. It is the year 10,191. They have been spacefaring people for so long, they literally cannot conceive of anything else. And so not only is technology prevalent in the culture, but a almost religion has been built around it, especially since we don't have computers, Which I think was such an interesting choice, because instead of saying we have become so advanced, technology has become so advanced, here's how technology has taken over these aspects of our lives, there literally came a point where technology had advanced so far, humanity felt threatened by it, and we had the butlerian, butlerian?
0: Butlerian. Butlerian
1: butlerian jihad. jihad. And that is when humanity fought back against the machines and outlawed. AI outlawed computers. And that's why the Bene Gesserit and the Mentat function as like computers. They function as um, analytical machines. Yes, And I think it's really interesting that Frank Herbert picked up on the idea that a woman's interpretation of the way you would process data is far more intuitive, far more um, instinctual, far more about training awareness of yourself, training awareness of your body, training all of these internal functions to be able to function as like a computer. Right. Whereas the mentats are more, I am taking in all of this external data, I process it mathematically like a machine, and then I provide you with, with an assessment of the situation.
0: Right. And there's the I think one of the reasons that works so well is... There's this huge, I don't know, precedent. There's this huge framework of like symbolic representations that are consistent, like across humanity, like across history, in human culture and stories, where you have separations between masculine and feminine that are distinct from like biologically male, biologically female. Yeah. And we use these structures in all of our storytelling and. And in like a as they use in the book, a first approximation of yeah, like dealing with people, because narratives are how we learn to you know structure things in our like internal monologue right. that help us uh, think about how other people do things and how things are going to unfold um, in real life and in stories, and so you like in this book world, he's set up this like the actual structures of the way their society operates have this clear-cut distinction between masculine concepts yeah. and feminine concepts and the Bene Gesserit fulfill all of the cultural and narrative roles of feminine attributes. And the Mentats do a lot of the masculine stuff. Yeah, And they happen to be... Male and female, but as we learn with Paul, a male can like learn some of the feminine skills and roles, which is what the Kwisatz Haderach has to do. Right. Uh,
1: I think a lot of the main characters state or it's implied that they're trained in in like the Bene Gesserit ways or trained at least a little bit as a mentat. Yes, because the Bene Gesserit, it's really just like hyper observation—the ability to just read the nuance in the, in another person and know how to react to that.
0: Right, and both the Mentats and the Bene Gesserit are their training is basically um, what? What do they do it? Um, oh, in altered carbon, okay. They when they're talking about the envoy training. It's like total immersion, um, full absorb of all the details.
1: Yeah, and I don't think and it's... And then an, you process it. I don't think it's it's an exaggeration to say that that concept comes from Dune.
0: The oh, absolutely. The idea of being
1: able to so highly train a mind that it almost becomes superhuman. Yes. And that's what has been happening to Paul. And so the Bene Gesserit Reverend Mother is there to test him to find out whether he is a human... Or an animal.
0: Which is a very cool distinction to make. Yes. Like, there's there are levels in this society where you're a person, right? And right. You, you go around feeling things and thinking things and doing things. But have you achieved the level of becoming a human as far as, like, you're a certified, like, agent that's trustworthy? Yeah. To override progress. your basic instinct. Yeah. yeah, To progress the species in, in a you know, good way, like for like long-term survival of the species. Yeah,
1: yeah. And also, you know, the Bene Gesserits are um, enacting a, pro- a, gr- a program of eugenics, a selective breeding program, of which Paul is something of an aberration because Lady Jessica was not supposed to have a boy. She was supposed to have a girl.
0: As part of their plan. As
1: part of their right. plan. But the Duke wanted a son, and she loves the Duke, so she gave him a son. And she kind of maybe thought that Paul could be the Kwisatz Haderach. But maybe also it was just because Duke Leto wanted a son. I don't know. Everybody's motives are so layered. Everyone's an onion. Everyone is an onion. There are layers and layers and layers to Right, there are no two-dimensional happening. characters. No. And this is, if anybody knows any scene from Dune it's the box
0: i i think that's because it's such a prominent scene in the book yeah and it's it's open to adaptation because like just if you're in the room right all that's happening is there's this old lady and this kid talking and he puts his hand in a box and then he starts looking uncomfortable and then there's like screaming and exclaiming yeah and then uh, he leaves
1: yeah pain by nervous but
0: the, the significance of what's happening is all internal experience yeah on both of their parts and so it's so open to interpretation for like a filmmaker it's like oh I can kind of do whatever I want and right. so it's a big uh, point of kind of exploration right experimentation
1: and after that after he passes the box test we get a little bit of a taste of who Paul is which is like he has prophetic dreams he is he's trained in a lot of Bene Gesserit things he's mildly trained in the voice which he will need she's like for the father nothing and I love how we set we don't obfuscate what's happening the only question is how it's going to happen, because the Bene Gesserit mother is like Reverend Mother. She's like, listen, y- you fucked up, Jessica, and because of that, we're not going to be able to seal the breach between Harkonnens and Atreides, and we very well may lose both bloodlines now.
0: Right. There is, as with everything, there's layers here. Yeah. One goal was to combine the bloodlines because that's part of their yeah pro- their their plan to breed. Um, what was it? I was looking through the glossary and they had some uh, just explanation about the Kwisatz Haderach.
1: Yeah. And the one who they, can be in many places at once.
0: Well, they reference that the Bene Gesserit are aware of a place within themselves that they cannot look. Yes. And.
1: A man could look there.
0: Yeah. Um, I'm formulating.
1: It's fine. Formulate away. I'll sip my coffee.
0: So there's a place inside the Bene Gesserit that they recognize they cannot look.
1: It is terrifying to us. As,
0: and it's more of a like genetic limitation, like a, a capacity of their biology that limits them that to looking in that place. Yes. So there's two places inside each person. Mm-hmm. Um, Paul talks about it later. There's two places inside each person that they can look uh, with the proper training,
1: yeah ancestral memory
0: yeah, mm-hmm. and one is masculine uh, themed yeah and one's feminine themed, and so the Bene Gesserit, because of their biological genetic abilities capacities, whatever they they the benerate like, women can look in the feminine side, and men who are trained can look in the masculine side, but they can't look in each other's. Yes. And Ben and Jessart are like, well, geez, that's a problem. It would be beneficial for the species to have someone who can do both. both. So, their breeding program is specific. It's not... Like, they use the term eugenics, but it's not um it's not like an exclusionary thing like a, a lot of the uh, his, our historical stuff anyway
1: yeah we're not going to talk about real yeah. life eugenics yeah. on this podcast the- <laughs> <laughs> they're real that it's it's shitty uh, that's a whole other kettle of fish yeah
0: okay so the goal of this eugenics program this breeding yes. program yes. is to bring about to
1: selective breeding program
0: a to breed a person who has the biological capacities and can ability to receive the right training to be able to access both sides yes and maybe do more stuff right and, and that's kind of their whole motivation for existence okay so they have the benegestret have this one plan, the selective breeding program to bring about the Kwisatz Haderach. Yes, but the other aspect of combining the Atreides and Harkonnen bloodlines has nothing to do with the bloodlines. Yeah, it's politics. It's politics. They've, there's this long-standing feud between Harkonnen and Atreides, which, from a like archetypal perspective, they are completely opposite. Yeah, they are opponents. And eventually, there will be another big battle between them. Right. There have been lots of fights between Harkonnen and Trades, and they want to combine the houses, marry the houses together to avoid further large scale conflicts. And there's probably like business, uh, business strategies involved in this long term plan to combine. The Harkonnen and Atreides. Well,
1: there's always layers. Yeah. Yeah. But really, it's just if you guys kill each other off, we lose both of these bloodlines that we've been carefully manipulating for millennia. And if he had, if she, Lady Jessica had had a daughter, that daughter could have been wed to one of the Harkonnen heirs. And it would have sealed the breach. But Lady Jessica didn't. And really, it is not just a feud. It is like a... Um, a cultural feud level vengeance revenge thing called Conley, where they have vowed to destroy each other. They have vowed to enact revenge against each other for yeah, whatever slight Conley initially or, or it.
0: Canley. They have is a. It's a. There's a very clear definition in yeah. the, uh, like. What is it, the charter? No, it's the what's the name for the um whole organization? The Lonsrod. It's the Lonsrod something. Starts with a C. Chelm? Um I'm pulling up the glossary for Canley. It was in there. The convention.
1: Ah, yes. So For- the
0: convention is like... Formal
1: feud or vendetta under the rules of the Great Convention carried on according to the strictest limitations. Originally, the rules were designed to protect innocent bystanders.
0: Right. So it's it's a way that the two houses can basically vow to wipe each other out, but there are strict rules about how they can act against the other. Right. In a way that limits it to... Collateral damage. Limits collateral damage. Limits collateral damage. Like you, you can basically only take out members of the royal family.
1: Right. And that's where they're at. The Harkonnen hate the Atreides. The Atreides hate the Harkonnen. They have for centuries. And now there's no way to fix it. And they're headed to Arrakis, Dune, desert planet. Because they've been given the planet by the emperor, Basically the emperor kicked the Harkonnens out and put the Atreides in power because the Atreides have a reputation for efficiency and honor and just being generally good about dudes. the best
0: in right. people processes. Yeah. Society. That's
1: whatever. our surface level reason. Also, Duke Leto is super popular in the Landsrod. So there's three this is a tripod government. There's three things. So there's three segments of the government. There's the Emperor, who is Shaddam IV, the Fourth, the eighty first of his line. And there is the Lansrad, which is the collected group of oligarchs, basically. They're the people who own the planets, run the planets. Um they're the dukes, the barons, the yeah. yeah. And then there is the um the spacing the guild. guild. Which I think is Really interesting that one of the elements what the, of this tripod government is um, effectively a company. And they are all owned, not owned, but they all own stock in the Chome Company. So if you want to talk late-stage capitalism, this is capitalism that has advanced so far. It has literally become the way that everything is ruled.
0: Right. All commerce is centralized. Yeah, all if commerce. If you're going to do business, yeah, you're doing it through the Chung company.
1: Right. And if you want to you want to talk about like we just watched RoboCop where everything was becoming privatized, it was like a post-apocalyptic late-stage capitalism. This is beyond late-stage capitalism to where capitalism has become government, capitalism has become religion, capitalism has become everything. The
0: entire and, society.
1: Right. And it's so endemic in the system. It's not even seen as like a thing separate from anything anymore. It has become part of what everyone is doing right
0: and and the like basically positions on the board of directors of Choem yeah are almost like hereditary yes and it's it's like an analog for the houses where basically the houses have all the directorships yeah in Choem. and there's a lot of mixing there's very little like clear separation of responsibilities. Right.
1: And then the emperor is the, like, he's the largest stockholder.
0: Yeah. Yeah. He's the majority shareholder. Right. In Choam.
1: And Choam stands for Combine Honet Ober Advancer Mercantiles. Did that clear anything up? Yeah, no, obviously. No. This is the this murkiest part of the book for me. Yeah. Is I mean he makes up a lot of words and you can roll with it. But Chom is clearly central to the plot because a lot of this is about manipulating stock and shares and Duke Lido has become too powerful. There's a chance that the Landsrod could give him enough shares that he becomes the majority stockholder and he unseats the emperor. Right.
0: And then he can take over the So, yeah. Of the so tripod. this, this is
1: clearly a, like a major part of it but it is not f- explained well enough i mean i all due respect to frank but I, every time they mention chom i'm like okay i really have to envision it like that like 1980s cutthroat boardroom that you saw in a lot of the movies like in Robocop where everybody in the boardroom is out for more power and killing each other is not off the table right and that's basically how you have to envision it and so what the emperor is doing is maneuvering duke leto into a position where he can be eliminated because as long as he stays on caladan that's the ancestral seat of his power everyone accepts his right to rule over caladan and he does a good job and there's literally nothing he can't stirring the pot won't do anything there
0: and even from a like hostile takeover perspective yeah he has the home field advantage Like just combat wise, right? uh, Duke Leto is undefeatable.
1: Yes. On on Caladan. Yes. He has the home turf advantage on Caladan. And so he's got to get him off. And what's the most attractive thing to get him off of this planet is Arrakis, because Arrakis is the richest planet in the Great Convention. And it's the richest, but also the most barren. Because it has one resource that everybody wants, and that is the spice. And the spice is like a consciousness-expanding drug that anyone can take. And the longer you take it, the more your consciousness remains expanded
0: but then the more you need to keep taking but yes the spice. but the more
1: addicted you get to it the more you need to take to get the same effect and then the more your body becomes dependent on taking it which frank describes it as the geriatric spice and, and
0: i that really like undermines it
1: frank did you look up that word geriatric did it mean something different in the 1960s when he wrote this book because all i hear when you say that is Old people spice, old spice. One might say. <laughs>
0: <laughs> maybe, maybe this is all just a play on, uh, <laughs> on old spice.
1: I think it's because it expands life. It extends life right. and expands. It consciousness. keeps you
0: healthy longer. longer. Yeah. So, yes, it would be attractive for elderly people to like, ba- basically, as a um like longevity medication. Yeah. A life extension, whatever, to keep you functional longer later into life.
1: Right. Okay. I, mean, okay. I don't know how else you would say that, but I certainly wouldn't use geriatric. But that's I just...
0: that's like the smallest piece of what the right. spice does.
1: Well, it's like every once in a while he just couldn't think of something, so he put in a placeholder word, and then he never got around to changing it. Like Paul. Everybody else is Leto, Fenrig, Gurney, Tufer. And then he's Paul. And also, Duncan Idaho. (laughs) (laughs) I, oh, maybe Duncan Idaho is the most exotic sounding name to them. Because it's the most.
0: Yeah, Paul would probably be an exotic name in this universe. I guess.
1: But we, you know, all of this is to say, Leto's going to Arrakis. He doesn't have a choice. He's been gifted Arrakis to turn it down. Would go, would infuriate the emperor. So even though he knows it's a trap, he's got to go.
0: Right there. I think because of like there's the like imperial um authority over the houses yeah. of the rod and then there's the like Atreides is beholden to, or has responsibilities to Choam. Yeah. And Shaddam is the majority shareholder in Choam. Yeah. So from two directions, He's Shaddam him. Yeah. gives him a command that he has to obey.
1: Yeah, even knowing that this is likely going to kill him, he has yeah. to go. Then the best thing he can do is just prepare as well as possible. And this is the most chess-moving part of the whole first section because we're learning all the pieces because we've got Duke Lido who is a good commander. He knows his people, he works really hard. We we drive that home really heavily. We have Gurney Halleck who is my favorite character in this book. I I think I read part of the first book at some point, but it's been a long time and I certainly didn't read the whole thing. And I had totally forgotten that Gurney speaks in like made up quotations. And he plays music and he's like a badass. So he's like, he's the total package. Of course he was played by Sir Patrick Stewart. in the 1984 version who else would you choose to deliver these dramatic almost shakespearean lines and they rely on him to do it they're like okay gurney man let's get a quote for this moment and he's always got one
0: right and it usually provides some kind of insight that like the duke wasn't quite getting and he's like ah yes gurney you you hit the or it's a commentary yeah
1: like a subtle commentary on a, a decision he thinks is a wrong decision. And then we have Tufer Howitt, who Tufer Howitt is the Mentat. And he's been their Mentat for like three generations. How old is Tufer Howitt? But they drink that spice liquor. They drink yes, the... the um, Mentats. Yeah, the juice of Sefu or whatever. And and they mention that they have like lip stains from it because that's how they... Sefu
0: colored lips.
1: Yeah. And that's how they um, absorb the spice. Because the Spice, the Mentats use Spice to expand their consciousness to the point where they can function like an analytical computer. And then we have Duncan Idaho, which Duncan Idaho and Gurney Halleck are really Paul's fighting instructors. Gurney's more high level. Um, He's more like, here's strategy, here's how to fight specific opponents. And then Duncan Idaho is more like hand-to-hand combat. Here's your knife, here's your sword, here's all these weapons, here's how to fight with them. And that's really our players, besides Lady Jessica and Paul, those are really our players in the Atreides arena. And you can see how the Duke, Duke Leto, has a large group of trusted people, including Dr. Yui. And I, I don't know how I feel about the fact that we know Dr. Yui is the traitor, like, immediately.
0: It's a very interesting strategy it's a bold strategy yeah to reveal like in the the captions at the top of each chapter right which that's a i like it's like the little multi-layered ways of telling the story and implying like the expansiveness of this universe is like starting chapter one you have quotations and it's yeah the the attribution on the quote yeah. is like from this book about, you know, Paul Atreides, Muad'Dib or whatever. Yeah. By the Princess Irulan. So, so we're, we know from the very beginning, okay, Princess Irulan, who is she? Yeah. Ah, don't know. But she's going to be writing books, a plethora of books about about Paul Atreides, yeah. providing you know, basically an info dump, like little snippets yeah. of info dumps.
1: Exposition. Like the voiceover at the beginning of a movie, but better. Right. And we also know from the very beginning that Paul is going to win. Yeah. Yeah. Because we have these little quotations. The only thing we don't know is how. He really, Frank really never leaves us in suspense.
0: Right. You always know how it's going to end. Yeah. Like, you get one detail, like, okay, Paul is going to become the emperor. Yeah. But you don't know any of the other side effects of the path that it took to get there, other than for this specific thing, this is what's going to happen. Right. And what's left to... Maintain the suspense is how is he going to do it and what are the other consequences of the choices he has to make to get there.
1: Yes. Yes. So it
0: really like from the very beginning. The the primary. uh, Way that this story is told is focusing on the journey, not the destination.
1: Yes. Yeah, because you know where you're going. Yeah. You always know where you're going. But the the joy is in, holy shit, how are we going to manipulate all these pieces to get there? Because we also have the Baron Harkonnen. Harkonnen, Harkonnen. Different places pronounce it differently. It's made up, so it's fine. Baron Harkonnen. And the Baron Harkonnen is on Gady Prime. And as lush and as beautiful and as wild as Caladan is, Gady Prime is like... A thin veneer of civilization over filth. That's how and, every- depression. and depression. That's how everybody describes it. Um, that you know, at that one point, they have the they have the birthday celebration or the celebration for Fade, and Count Fenrig goes to goes to Gaty Prime, and he's like, "Oh yeah, everything here has been cleaned up, but once we get outside the radius, it's all slums and filth, and just the idea that the Baron Harkonnen is not a bad leader." And not a good leader. And we come at how nasty the Baron Harkonnen is in a lot of really interesting, and I don't know how well they have aged, directions. One is he is morbidly obese. And goddamn, if we don't mention that, every single time this guy pops up. His baby fat cheeks, the fact that he's hungry all the time. I mean.
0: And his... Complete negligence of like physical exercise.
1: Right? He wears suspenders. He wears
0: like anti gravity. Yeah,
1: So that he doesn't devices. have to support. He doesn't have to support his own weight, which is a little bit metaphorical.
0: Oh, uh, it's a lot of bit metaphorical. A lot of bit
1: metaphorical. And he also um, enjoys the company of young boys.
0: And he always kills them afterward.
1: Yes. He especially likes one that looked like Paul. Or look like his nephew Fade, which he never mentions. I mean, I don't know that this is redemptive in any stretch of the imagination. But he never touches Fade, and he never actually tries to get Paul.
0: Right. I think that's part of the. Okay, so we said every character is an onion. Yeah. Every there's no two dimensional characters here. Right. The Baron Harkonnen is the closest thing to a two-dimensional character, but throughout the book, we very um, subtly expose his layers because for certain things, he is very good at controlling his uh, urges, his impulses. Yeah like for fade it's like so he has he has this idea of his legacy the baron has this idea of his legacy and he works really hard to maintain his barony yeah whatever his uh his fiefdom his fiefdom mm-hmm. and he's always been intending to pass it on yeah to to an heir:
1: yeah to the na baron
0: the na baron yes and so he really cultivates fade as a successor, and part of that dedication to his legacy and his successor is he's not going to damage or traumatize his successor in because of his selfish. Compulsions, yeah. And so he finds ways to like trick himself into feeling like he's satisfied this compulsion Ugh, to do whatever. Yeah. Uh, but he he never once compromises on maintaining the integrity of Fade.
1: I mean, he has a line. Is it a great line? Not a great line, but it's a line. Yeah. And this is just to make him seem villainous. He's given villainous compulsions because that makes us see him as villainous. It's to, to erase any amount of sympathy, sympathy that the reader might have for the Baron. Um, because oftentimes he is framed as being like the scapegoat for the Emperor <clears throat> and for the Landsrod. Because kind he's kind of... Because
0: so, he has a reputation for being super hedonistic yeah, he's he's the
1: the the smelly guy at work. I don't. That's a really nasty way to say it too. But he's the the fellow that like it it just is not everybody's cup of tea and is really nobody's cup of tea. But he's the smartest guy in the room. So he has con- he has continually compensated for his own failings by manipulating the world around him to his benefit. If he can't win it just by being a good dude, he's going to win it by being smarter than everybody else.
0: Right, and this really feels like the person who's so to to make a distinction between talent and skill. Yeah, I would say um, the Baron has like massive talent, but he hasn't practiced the discipline of refining that into a skill into a you know finely tuned skill yeah whereas leto the duke um, i guess i don't know if any of the other houses use the titles duke
1: we don't really talk about all the other houses there's like minor Mm -hmm. houses and major houses which and then we have the emperor we have the duke we have the baron and we have the count so count fenrig but we don't Give we don't talk about anybody else enough to give them a like and, honorific, and I
0: think we pick different titles for different houses so that you there's no ambiguity. If you say the Duke, you yeah, you there's yeah. no other Dukes, yeah. Um, okay, so the Baron, um, the Baron has massive talent but hasn't.
1: Refined it into a skill.
0: Refined it into a skill. And the Duke has like moderate talent, but like his shtick is he refines everything.
1: Well, he also surrounds skills. himself with people that compensate for his failings. Whereas the only one that the Baron really has is Piter.
0: And even Piter, he has corrupted.
1: Right. Well, Piter, I think was a little bit...
0: Well, yeah. Yeah. Hydra was he, he was probably a little bit He was already
1: off. sliding down the slope, and I think the Baron Harkonnen just gave him a little push. And so he is our psychopath Mentat.
0: Right. And, yeah, uh, who is
1: thoroughly obsessed with the Lady Jessica and is doing most of this so that he has the opportunity to have the Lady Jessica.
0: Right. Which is have, why... Have in a possessive way.
1: Right. Yes. And I, which is why I think it's interesting we never talk about the Baron Harkonnen even attempting to be with Paul, because he's allowing Piter to manipulate all of this so that he could, quote, have the chance to be with Lady Jessica. He could easily have added in, and I get Paul. But one of the things in this world is the emperor has a truth-sayer who knows if you're telling the truth or if Absolutely. you're lying. Absolutely. With 100% accuracy. And so you have to be able to maintain the moral high ground. You have to be able to tell the truth to the emperor. So he cannot compromise even a small amount, because right. if he does, it will all fall
0: you, you can't just maintain plausible deniability. you have to maintain actual, actual deniability, deniability.
1: yes, and so all of those people on the Atreides side all bundle into a spaceship and we travel to Kalan- to Atreides God. arrakis. we travel to arrakis. And really, we kind of undercurrent to everything is how powerful the Spacing Guild is. And the fact that as powerful as the Landsrod and the Emperor think they are, they are completely dependent on the Spacing Guild for travel. And that makes the Spacing Guild the most powerful force in the
0: universe. But they don't exercise that power right in a heavy-handed way.
1: They just—it's it. all
0: behind the scenes. Behind everybody the scenes. has guildsmen advisors. Yeah, except for Lido.
1: Yes, except for Lido because he doesn't trust the guild. And I thought it was right. interesting that when they're on the spaceship, everybody gets in their their spaceship, and once you're in the like massive thing that the they actually highliner. Trans- the highliner that they actually transport, you aren't allowed to get out. They're not allowed to mix because you don't know if people that you have a feud with might be on another ship also traveling with you. So, well, they can't risk
0: conflict. Right. So part of the contract with the guild is you maintain neutrality when you're on the Highliner. And if you don't, well, no more contracts for you.
1: Yeah. No more space travel for you. And all space travel is done by what they call the Navigators. And in the book, we don't get a description of the Navigators at all. Just that they're mysterious. They've been changed by the Spice. To the point where they no longer look human, but we don't know what they do look like. Right. Which I think is interesting because every film adaptation has come up with their own. Maybe this is what they look like, but that's completely plucked out of thin air because right.
0: it's all speculation. It's all speculation. Right. It's a it's a gap in the world. Yeah. That the the director the whatever can fill in right. with whatever they want. Yeah. That they think will look cool. Right.
1: And I do like. I like the technology that we do include. I'm specifically referencing the Orange Catholic Bible that the doctor uh, <laughs> the, the OC Bible. The OCB. That um, why Orange Catholic? It's like
0: I think he he wants to reference some of the some of our current cultural context on so so to say it's a Bible, a Catholic Bible conveys a lot of historical context and meaning and significance to like it makes the contents of that predictable rather than making up a whole new religious text he could say oh the readers are on earth in the 20th or 21st century yes they're going to know what the catholic church is They're going to have some idea of the kinds of stories in the Christian Bible. Right. And there's a lot of like significant mythological narratives in the Bible that have a lot of cultural relevance.
1: Yeah. We also. And to be
0: able to borrow that for this story that's not on earth is not our culture is really useful to connect the reader to this whole universe. Yeah.
1: And we also have to put on our context lenses for Frank Herbert. He is writing this in the sixties. He is writing this right on the cusp of like the global awareness of global religion that is the cult and religious explosion of the late 60s and early 70s, where these people are finally becoming aware of all these other cultures. This insular world that existed in the 40s and 50s is gone. And now people are starting to think holistically about religion. It doesn't last long, obviously. But in the late 60s and early 70s, there's this mysticism, this, this burgeoning amount of... It's why you get Heaven's Gate. It's why you get... Charlie Manson. It's why you get the explosion of cults and cult leaders in the early 70s, late 60s, early 70s, because, you know, you're getting Hare Krishna, you're getting all of these. Maybe we can kind of come up with our own religion. right? And with that comes an awareness of just the plethora of religious experiences in the world. And so I think Frank was trying to reconcile that into, if this is how we feel now, what happens when this has become so accepted that all religions sort of meld into one sense of mysticism. And in his glossary, he defines the Orange Catholic Bible as the, quote, accumulated book, the religious text produced by the commission of ecumenical translators. It contains elements of the most ancient religions, including Mahomet Sari, Mahayana Christianity, Sensunni Catholicism, Catholicism, and buddhist Islamic traditions. Its supreme commandment is considered to be, Thou shalt not disfigure the soul.
0: Wow. Yeah. Interesting.
1: And so I think for, for that section, at least, for the way that mysticism plays kind of a prevalent but not overt part, is really an outgrowth of what the culture would have felt like in the late 60s, early 70s in America. And I think if you just consider that as part of it, a, a lot of this starts to make sense. And so he gets the Orange Catholic Bible, which there's all these prophecies. I love how there's prophecies. But under, but again, underneath of it all is the knowledge that the Bene Gesserit
0: are manipulating Create, create
1: prophecies to fuck with people. They have the Missionaria Protectiva, and their entire purpose is to seed prophecy into all cultures. Because if there's one thing Frank Herbert loves, it's a long-term plan.
0: He's always playing the long game.
1: Right. He's always planting trees under whose shade he's never going to sit. And that's everybody in his book, too. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years of people have been working towards this final goal. Hun- Centuries of Bene Gesserit have been working for the Kwisatz Haderach. Centuries of Bene Gesserit have been seeding cultures with prophecy, with mysticism, with religion. So if they ever need to use them, they just have to show up, fulfill a couple of prophecies. And, and- then they
0: have authority in and- that ding, ding, society. Ding.
1: Yeah. Now I'm your prophet, bitch.
0: Because not only are the Bene Gesserit manipulating bloodlines, right. they are behind the scenes pulling all the levers right. f- to kind of keep the entire societal structure stable long enough to get to the kind of people that can do that on their own.
1: Right. And it's sort of like, in our culture today, how many Christians believe that Jesus will be back. So the only thing yeah. someone would need to do to take power over a large amount of the population would be to claim they're Jesus, perform a couple of believable miracles, and yeah sh- that's it, dunzo. You've you've become the prophet, the leader of most people who identify as Christian. And that's that's the model he's going after. That's what the missionary protectiva does. Right. Yeah. So we arrive on Arrakis, and chess has continued. But this isn't just a chess board. This is like chess in Star Trek, where you have like five <laughs> levels, and you're moving the pieces up and down. Yeah,
0: what do they call it? Pyramidal chess?
1: Yeah. Uh, this is this is next-level political maneuvering, because the Harkonnens are trying to cast suspicion on Lady Jessica, Lady Jessica clearly is innocent in this whole situation. But Duke Leto is allowing everyone to believe that he suspects Lady Jessica because he doesn't want the Harkonnens to know that he doesn't suspect Lady Jessica. And the only person he tells that he doesn't actually think his mom is the bad guy is Paul because that way if something happens to him, Paul will be able to tell Jessica later that Duke Leto never suspected her.
0: Which Uh, props to, like, making these characters believable. Yeah. Like you have the the smart guy right who's like super honorable but also really good at tactics. Yeah. To say, okay, yes, my, you know, information um uh, my my spy master. Yeah. Uh yeah, definitely we need to uh we need to work this deception. But I'm not only a great leader and great tactician; I'm also a great lover of my significant other. Yeah, and I would never want her to fall to this deception if something were to happen to me before I could disclose. Yeah, this whole operation, this whole scheme to maintain this deception, right? To be able to catch you know the actual Harkonnen spies, yes. influencers, whatever. And so he's like, "I'm gonna pick one person, the person I trust the most, yeah uh, to pass this message to Jessica, and that really just reinforces the the depth of um, the Duke being just all around a good person who's also very um conscientious. yeah. He's taking care of all the edge cases. Right.
1: And if you want to talk about plans within plans within plans, let's pause a moment and discuss the dinner party. The dinner party is a masterclass in juggling what I think is probably about 10 characters, all talking, but not talking about what they're actually saying. And multiple plots are all happening. Multiple plans are happening. In the middle of it, an extra plan comes in. And the Duke has to leave for a second and then come back. And by the end of it, it's exhausting to have read it. I cannot imagine what it would be like to have written it.
0: Any other scene like this in any other book I've read where you have like a large group trying to have complicated And complex conversations. Yeah. They don't work. No. It's, it just kind of works out to be a mess and it just feels like overly diplomatic, bureaucratic storytelling. Right. And, but this one, you, I feel like the, so for this book, you know, it's broken up into the three sections. I feel like the first section work the reader is kind of almost pushed through the narrative. Yeah. And then the second and third sections you're getting led along. Yeah. And so you're getting pushed through all of this stuff because you have to get through so much backstory and like world-building context. Right. <clears throat> for you to actually like not get overwhelmed. The book, but given that you have this this room full of like actual multi layered characters, yeah, and there's all these gambits and deceptions going on, and it's fun.
1: Yeah, yes, because there's it's a lot. I, I can't even describe all the things that are happening because there's like smugglers, there's guildsmen, there's Someone's there to seduce Paul, but Paul knows she's there to seduce him, and there's all this stuff And Lady
0: Jessica's like, oh, I'm not worried about that because that that was included in Paul's training.
1: Yeah, it's fine. Paul's going to be fine. And we even continue the theme of the 1980s boardroom where everybody's trying to kill each other to get ahead because there's a poison snooper in every room because at any moment, Somebody might be trying to kill you. In fact, somebody's already tried to kill Paul because we had the little hunter-seeker that right. tried to kill him. They tried to take the life of my son. And not only are we listening to what they're saying, we are getting in-the-head thoughts from most of the principal characters during this entire dinner scene.
0: But you get the most informative, contextual inner monologue Yeah, to clarify something, either to... Like, close off a line of speculation. Like, when Paul realizes, oh, like, she's here, or uh, Jessica realizes, oh, this, you know, prattering, um airhead yeah. is not actually, it's an act. Yeah. And
1: what is she actually trying to do? Oh, she's trying to seduce Paul. Oh, and okay.
0: so then when she's like, oh, he, this girl's trying to seduce Paul, you could think, uh oh! Like, is that going to be the direction this goes? Is yeah. she going to tr- get Paul like alone in a room and then try to kill him? Like, is this just going to be a series of attempts on Paul's life? But then, like, right when you start trying to, what? Right when you start thinking of like possible plot lines for this seduction attempt to go down, we close it off with, oh no, that. You know, the whole sex thing was not withheld from Paul's training.
1: Yeah. Honey pot ain't going to work. Yeah. And then he, Leto leaves, Paul ends up taking over the table, and then it, it ends up with another layer because they're all trying to be like, oh, he's just a 15-year-old boy. He doesn't know what he's talking about. And so Paul is speaking, but he's actually saying things that are very, as as layered in meaning, because if there's anything this whole culture reveres... It's um, manipulation. It's yes. Um, Subterfuge—that's the word I was looking for. They really value being able to to use subterfuge, and I think this is driven mostly by the fact that you cannot lie. So you when, have to right. manipulate everything on, onto a course where it does it itself, because you have to be able to say, "Well, oh, I had I didn't do it."
0: Right. And that all the great leaders have a Bene Gesserit advisor. Yeah. And the Bene Gesserit advisors are all trained to a certain degree, or at least have an ability to discern lies. Right. So when you're interacting with the leaders and their Bene Gesserit advisor is there, you have to speak technically true things.
1: Yes. Yes. And the fact that he invented that for this book and then carried it through through the whole book is laudable. And we also get a sense in the first section. I think part of what we're doing in the first section is really setting up the, the themes for our characters that will follow through all the way through the book. So when we first meet the Lady Jessica, she seems infallible. And by the time we get to Arrakis, you realize she's bullshitting half the time. She's just really good at bullshitting. Because, like, when she meets the shout out mapes, and the shout out mapes is literally trying to, like, suss out, are you, are you right. the one? she's
0: there to provoke the, you know, prophetic yeah. actions.
1: Right, Because but Jessica doesn't know what particular prophecy the missionary Protectiva has seeded here. So she has to tread... Tiny little steps to get the shout out to give her enough clues to tell her what she needs to be doing.
0: And without the internal monologue of Jessica during these scenes, if it was just a description of what they're doing and saying, then you'd miss out. On yeah, how much she's really just feeling her way through Yeah, she's like, every okay, so this
1: word came from this language. This language has these primary beliefs, so she's probably trying to get me to do this.
0: Right, and I know that the pattern of, of these mythologies, these prophecies, is this kind of thing, and so it really exposes the depth and breadth of yeah. training that a Bene Gesserit has to complete, to be, like, released into the world right. as a legit Bene Gesserit.
1: And she also has the adob, which you mentioned. Which, <laughs> it's really fascinating that we include the idea of ancestral memory. For Paul, it becomes a very real, very alive thing. He refers to it as his terrible purpose. And Lady Jessica refers to it as adob, which is like, I have a flash, a moment of inspiration. I don't know where it came from, but I know what, exactly what I need to do in this moment. And it's like I literally have, because of my genetic heritage and because I am able to commune with my body and with my body's knowledge on such a deep level, I am capable of accessing a wealth of wisdom and expertise that are not mine. And I'm not always consciously aware that I'm doing it, but I can access all of the wisdom of my ancestors in a flash of inspiration. Which is probably part of what they're trying to get with the selective breeding, is right. if you bring together enough wisdom and ancestral knowledge, you should be able to create someone who has the fullness of awareness to be able to access both the feminine and the masculine.
0: And a fullness, or at least a comprehensive set of ancestral lines yeah. that solved different kinds of problems or you know had the the right range of experiences.
1: Right. Yes. And as we move through this section, there is really an awareness of the danger that they're in and the inevitability of it and how and the unavoidability of what was happening, what happens to them ultimately. And I think the only thing that really surprises anybody in this section is the level of involvement that the emperor has in what the Harkonnens do. Because the Harkonnens, it was never a question they were getting Dune back. They were going to get Arrakis back. They just needed Leto there. Then the Baron Harkonnen, because he's the smartest guy in the room, he does exactly what he wants to have done. It all falls into place perfectly. And he maintains the moral high ground. He maintains actual deniability, everything that's required of him, and it's done. I mean, he broke Dr. Yui, because Dr. Yui's our traitor. And he has what is called... um,
0: Imperial conditioning.
1: Imperial conditioning. He's from the...
0: Suk Sook School of Medicine. Sook, yeah,
1: the Sook School. And so he has like a diamond tattooed on his forehead. And so anybody who's gone through this conditioning is completely trustworthy, which is something you need in a world where people will literally kill you at any moment. Everyone around you is trying to kill you. Sometimes even your best friend is trying to kill you. So you just have to, you, to have someone you can trust completely is invaluable. right, And- Baron Harkonnen is skilled at the thing that this society values the most, which is manipulation and subterfuge. And so he is able to break Dr. Yui by taking his wife and using his love for his wife against him, which it makes me wonder. uh, Just this is a little tiny nitpick. If you're going to create something like the Sook School of Conditioning, you should be aware of the fact that attachment represents a weakness it represents a lever that somebody could use to break the conditioning and so wouldn't you encourage anyone that goes through the conditioning to not form emotional attachments in this way because that would represent divided loyalty Mm -hmm. and you can't have divided loyalty and be completely trustworthy i do like the moment where dr yui is he's sitting and thinking because he's conflicted about what he's about to do he's gonna do it but he's like, not happy about it. And so he's thinking about his wife, who was a Bene Gesserit, And he's like, hang on. The Bene Gesserit don't usually make mistakes. And she never gave me a, a child. Because the Bene Gesserit are so in control of their bodies. They are in control of whether or not they conceive. And so even though they were married, they never produced a child. And he's like, did she know she was going to get captured
0: is this all another long game?
1: Yeah, that the
0: Bene Gesserit were playing.
1: Because you never know with the Bene Gesserit. Was this their plan all along that she be used against me, so that I could be complicit in taking down the House of Tredes? No, no, and, that, no, mm, and nah.
0: she, um, like, put him through some of the Bene Gesserit training.
1: Right. Yep. Huh, just something to think about. We don't revisit it because Dr. Yui dies like immediately. In fact, by the end of part one, the house is completely broken up. So all the the circle of trust that Duke Leto had built uh, really just falls apart. Because as soon as Dr. Yui, because what Dr. Yui does is he turns off everything. He turns off the shields. He turns off the defense grid and just lets everybody in. Right as the Duke is going to go tell the Lady Jessica everything about how it was a lie, that he didn't really suspect her, and he's like, I should have just told her from the beginning. I'm going to go tell her right now. And he hears a noise, and when he goes down there, he gets, like, trank darted. Yeah. And they trade out his tooth, which I do like in the book, how it's already a fake tooth. He just takes the fake tooth out, puts a new fake tooth in, as opposed to some of the movie adaptations where we graphically rip out his tooth. Ugh. Um, the tooth, <laughs> the tooth. It's the tooth that has like a cyanide pill in it, or like a cyanide gas. It, yeah, it yeah. has a poison gas. A poison gas, because they're very good at poisons. As a society that values subterfuge would be. And I did like that in the book. The battle is kind of in the background. Th- that's right. usually my least favorite part of any of the adaptations is this big battle, where the Harkonnen and Sardukar dressed as Harkonnen. Um, take, destroy the entire house of Atreides as much as possible to the last man. And, you know, Dr. Yui gets taken to the Baron Harkonnen and he finds out his wife is dead, which he had guessed. He she, He's like, Yeah, I already freed her. She's free now. She gets to be dead, I guess. No longer. And you purchase. get to join her in and death. And you get to join her. You get to go be with her now. Here you go. Just shoots him. Yeah. I don't, This part is all very, like, a lot happens right here. We have been playing this chess, and now it's finally chess endgame. Gurney Halleck and Two for Howitt and Duncan Idaho, like, there's nothing, nothing, no arrangements for them. So we don't really know what's happening. We kind of know because Dr. Yui told Duncan to get a thopter.
0: Right. Dr. Yui did as much as he could to mitigate the fallout. Yeah. Yeah. For the Atreides, like, family.
1: For Paul and Jessica.
0: Because he was so devoted to the family.
1: Right. And so he gets a thopter together for them, and he, the people that take them up, um, they're able to overpower, and, you know, they have the supplies right. they and need, we, and blah, we, blah, blah, blah. I mean, it just
0: reinforces like, and gives us some more context on what kind of training right. and abilities does Jessica have, and... What has she taught Paul and helped Paul cultivate? Yeah,
1: I did like that in the book, they described the voice, the Bene Gesserit voice, as um, you have to take the measure of a person. Yes. It's not one size fits all. They need to talk to you enough that you get their speech patterns down, that you can use a tailor-made voice to influence them. This is the most action-y, least uh, nuance-y part of the book, is this whole segment where the fruition of the Harkonnen plans and the fall of House Atreides. This is the most like this happened and then this happened and then this happened and then this happened. And that's how Paul and Jessica ended up crashed in the desert. Ding, ding, ding. I mean, that's, it's good. It's, it's a lot. I mean, it's since so much up to this point had been dialogue and subtle manipulation and step forward and step back and step sideways. When we get to this part, it's almost a relief. It's like, Oh, stuff's happening. Like actual things are happening. And they end up crashing. And Duncan Idaho finds them. And he tries to maintain a certain amount of suspense, because he'll be like, oh, and then a thopter came over the ridge. And then we cut to the Baron Harkonnen. And the Baron Harkonnen's talking about how they're using like bombs, basically, to collapse tunnel entrances to seal in the Atreides. Every house has atomics, which I think is
0: really interesting.
1: Every house has like a mutually assured
0: destruction. Basically. Yeah, they
1: all have like inherited nuclear weapons that they just have. And there's an agreement that they will never use them, but they all have Against to have humans. them. Yeah. They all have to have them. And they also have laser guns, which is the most 60s way of saying like a laser pistol.
0: Yeah. Yeah. But it's cool that he puts he builds limitations into their technologies. Yeah. So, the shields aren't infallible shields because a laser gun will blow um, it up, destroy it. Yeah. And it also destroys the laser gun. Right. So, like the two most powerful pieces of offensive and defensive technology are mutually destructive.
1: Right. You can't use a laser gun against somebody in a shield because you'll both die. And everybody has shields. Everybody relies on shields. Everybody wears shield generators all the time because you are never safe. You are never safe in their society.
0: Right. And the shields protect you completely from like being stabbed quickly. Yeah. Uh,
1: (laughs) The slow blade penetrates the shield.
0: (laughs) uh, And from projectile weapons. Yeah. And the mutually assured destruction of wearing the shield protects you from getting shot with a laser gun. Right. Which uh, I I can imagine making a laser gun that you just like set up almost like a tripwire and just leave it.
1: Yeah, I mean what what we're getting but, at here yeah. is open warfare is rare. Right. Open warfare is not something that happens all the time. The we actual
0: have... destructive methods have advanced to the point where it's not feasible or reasonable to use them. Right. And so that's why it's novel when the Harkonnens use actual explosives to trap the Atreides right uh, fighters in the caves.
1: Yes. And, and so from here, you know, Duncan Idaho finds them, they go meet Liette because we've been hearing rumblings of Liette through this entire book. Liette, they don't know if it's a religious figure, if it's a mythological figure, if it's an actual leader, who Liette is, because one of the things that Duke Leto is really harping on is on Caladan. they could rule by water and air, but on On Arrakis, they need desert power. And everyone has underestimated the Fremen. Every single other leader has just discarded the Fremen as, um, like, backwoods. There's not very many of them. Just ignore them. Forget they exist, because who cares? Except Duke Leto. Which is supposed to show us that Duke Leto is such a good, open-minded leader He's willing to entertain the idea that these, quote, backwater people will be um, helpful because they know the planet. They exist on the planet. He sees, hey, um, these guys live out in the deep desert and they don't die. Right. There's something to this, you guys.
0: Right. Just part of how he operates, how he structures his worldview is he leaves his prejudices open to recognize unrecognized value right and he sees oh here's this planet that who? even in the city it is a struggle just to stay alive yeah and then there's this whole tribe there's this whole society that just lives out in the wilderness right like what the shit uh there's, there's no, something going on here. Yeah,
1: why have we never taken a census of them? Why do we not have satellites over these whole sections of the right. planet? There's the, something here.
0: They're dirty, they're smelly, they speak in like their own dialect and they're they're all looked down upon yeah. by the more cultivated, sophisticated society. Right. But yeah. he's and, like, "Ah, there's something here." And right. And he has his trusted advisors that he outsources a lot of information gathering and uh, decision making to. Yeah. And they're like, uh, yeah, there's millions of them. Yeah,
1: this is, this is fucking serious. We need to take this serious, especially Twofer, as old as he is. Which I like how we keep calling into question how capable Tufer still is. They're like, right. do you need to go take a nap? Are you slipping? Should you go lay down for a minute? But they do meet Liet Liette Kynes, who was the judge of the change. So we've seen him, we've seen him a couple times already. Um, he's the one who took them up in the doctor when they went to visit the spice patch. Um, he's the one who we get a lot of his internal monologue. You know, he will know your ways as if born to them. Um, Because Paul is continuously, unconsciously fulfilling the prophecy of the Lisan Al-Gaib, the voice from the outer world. And that's why Liet chooses to – Liet's not religious. Liette's not really Fremen. He has just, like, become part of their – He's half Fremen. He's become part of their culture.
0: Yeah. His father was an imperial guy, and he married a Fremen woman.
1: Right. And so Liette is like – Okay, well, I'm not really religious, but I'm willing to entertain the idea that there's something here because you keep doing shit that is uncannily like what they said you would be doing. And so I'm willing to take the chance to be on your side, even though I was tacitly told I'm on the Harkonnen side. And he rescues them and he's going to give them coffee and he takes them to this old research station because at one point they were trying to figure out how to terraform Arrakis, how to get more water in the system in Arrakis so that it's not so desert, so that it's an easier place to live. And he kind of gives them a little bit of a rundown on that. But then they they get found. And this is when Duncan, Idaho dies. So Gurney's disappeared already. Toofer's disappeared already. We see Duncan stabbed and bleeding before we shut the door. But we don't see Duncan, Idaho.
0: actually die
1: actually die and meanwhile we have the confrontation between Duke Leto and the Baron Harkonnen where the Baron Harkonnen is pontificating he's monologuing about his scheme and how great he is and how isn't it amazing that I've lorded this over you and that makes me better than you and I don't care what anybody else says I don't care if you're like your dad killed a bull and then got killed by a bull and you're a badass and you're like from a family of badasses and whatever. I'm the best. Can't you tell? Because I'm about to kill you and that makes me better. And the Duke's like, the tooth. <laughs> Cause, <laughs> cause he's so drugged up. And so he bites the tooth and he ends up killing Piter. Right. But he doesn't manage to kill the Baron. He just kills everybody in the room. And the Baron's like, great. Now I've got to get another Mentat. <laughs> <laughs> um, which he was like, well, I was going to get one soon anyway because Piter was a little bit too much. He was a little bit extra. Yeah, And so we go back to Paul. And this is kind of where part one ends because they flee into the desert. They get a thopter. Um, they leave Liet behind. And they take off in this thopter. And Paul has to fly into a storm in order to lose the Harkonnens. And We have been foreshadowing Paul's ability through the entire first season section. And now that he is out in the desert, in the spice, he is being given spice coffee. He is being fed spice. His terrible... His sleeper is awakening.
0: He is... I guess we've very clearly defined and explored what his current abilities are as a result of... His training right. by his mother and by you know, the fighters right. and everything, and we find out that the reason Tufer is his like main teacher is because he's been is trained because as a he's also being trained yeah. as a mentat. So he's getting both the like, so he's been getting his whole life the most sophisticated, advanced training and education. In both the masculine arts and the feminine arts yeah. of the Mentat school and the Bene Gesserit school. Yeah,
1: pure analytical, anal, pure analytical
0: ability, thought,
1: and intuitive, um, intuitive, what, intuition, pure intuition, pure analysis. Yeah, he Those gets are the, the, two sections. the
0: explicit analysis yeah. and deduction ability. Yeah. And he gets the implicit analysis and deduction and on the Bene Gesserit side a lot of it's more the performance the execution right personally whereas the mentat side is more logistics yeah and uh logical deduction right
1: and now that is all coming to um it's intermingling in a way it never had before because right. when he wakes up after because now we have this
0: third ability which is, was just wakes up. these prophetic dreams. Right. Every once in a while he'd have a dream of a future event, and most of the time that future event would come to pass as it did in his dream. Yeah. And yeah, and then he's out in the in the wild with the spice flowing around.
1: Yeah. And he's like, oh shit.
0: And he like becomes untethered from time. And yeah, he becomes
1: anchored in the capital N now because he sees the past and the future as all happening at once, and so it becomes the all encompassing now. And he, I kind of think of it as in Interstellar when he visits the oh yeah the, the fourth dimension, and he's in that space that is just in infinite the directions. space that's
0: been constructed. For him to, for um, Matthew McConaughey's character to explore time, yeah, to be able to visualize time, yeah,
1: because he can literally see his the room, his daughter's bedroom, in all directions and
0: interact with it, and
1: interact with it past, present, future. All of it exists at once now, sort of like uh, old school film when it was all rolled up. Each Mm -hmm. individual image is separate, but it all exists all at the same time. Yeah. And he can see that now and he can see if I change one thing right now, I can watch as the ripples travel through time and see how that changes everything. And I can sort of extrapolate. Here's 15 potential actions. Here's the fifteenth. here's the, you know, 145 potential outcomes in this moment. And he's aware of absolutely everything. The amount of dust in the air, the smell, the number of grains of sand around the tent. He's just in like hyper awareness mode. And he um, is a little bit freaked out by it. Yeah. Yeah. Because he goes from like, Hey, you're a 15, 16 year old boy. You're the son of a Duke. It's going to be tough, but here's the rules of the world you live in to your dad's dead. You might not even be human. And uh, your mom that you thought was like the best and knew everything now seems a little bit slow to you.
0: Yeah, so I've ta- we've now, taken away even that. Comfort. As much as you've like completed and fulfilled the training that your mother gave you, yeah, it's not so much that he's surpassing her abilities in the Bene Gesserit way, um, except for like the truth saying. Right. He has the full truth saying, whereas Jessica has, like most of it. Right, She doesn't have, she can tell when someone's lying, but Paul can infer more context right. behind why they're lying or what they're lying about. And, but it's really, it's this third leg on the tripod yeah. that Paul is growing into. Correct.
1: Yeah. And that's really where we leave it for part one.
0: And he kind of has a mental breakdown.
1: He he really does because he wants to just be a normal person and cry for his dad, but he can't shut it off. Right. It's new and it's like somebody turned on the tap and then broke off the handle and he can't turn it off anymore.
0: And he's really concerned with the fact that his dad just, he just found out his dad is dead. Yeah. And he lost literally everything except his mother. Right. And he's not feeling it.
1: Yeah. He's like, oh shit, what does that because mean? Because of all me? the
0: spice. Well, because of, like, he's, when you are in a crisis, a traumatic situation, your instincts and your training take over. Yeah. And all, of, so, like, creativity and exploration and novel insight, that all requires. A psychologically safe space. Yeah. And it's a fragile thing and interruptions or unforeseen problems, uncertainty, anxiety will disrupt that safe space of having the ability to do like creative, um, creative thought work. Right. And... So, he's in this traumatic situation, and his training is taking over. He's absorbing information. He's processing it. And he's... But he himself, he's kind of sitting there watching, and he's like, oh, I can te- I can feel like there's the whole Mentat training side of me, yeah. and that machine is just going full tilt. And then there's the Ben Jesseret training side, and I can't... Like actually, emotionally process what's happening right now. Yeah, because his training has been so comprehensive to keep him functional in a crisis. Right, and now he's struggling with that. It's causing him like anguish that he can't.
1: But not process. But not which. But it's not inhibiting
0: his ability to perform in the moment. Right, and so he's feeling this as a kind of suffering that he. He doesn't have the ability right now to process his emotions. Yeah. And then this third thing shows up. Yeah. And the future unfolds to him, like the range of possible futures. And then his mom's saying stuff and he's like, God, I just can't deal with anything else right now. Yeah. And so he snaps at her. And... The last thing that happens at the end of part one is he's finally coming down from... Well, they this... disappear
1: into the storm. That's the end of part one. They fly off after they meet Liette, and they disappear into the storm. And they're believed dead, but they don't find their bodies.
0: Uh, no, I, I just pulled up part two and looked at the pages immediately oh. before that. Okay. Okay. So, book two, deep Yeah. And... And so this is where he's, he's like, I can't turn any of this off right now. Yeah. Mom, and you're trying to comfort me, but you have no idea what I'm experiencing. Right? Like, for anybody else, Jessica would actually have a good idea of what somebody else is experiencing and how to help them through right. it yeah. emotionally, psychologically. But- One, he can see everything she's trying to do Mm -hmm. to manipulate him, which she's trying to manipulate him in a like healthy psychological path back to a feeling of safety. But he can see all of that. Plus he's seeing all this other stuff and making all these conclusions. He's getting all the future sight. But then his mentat and Bene training analysis machines are churning through that huge amount of information and just feeding him conclusions feeding him data yeah and insights and facts about the future and so uh i think this is when he tells her that oh yeah you're actually a harkonnen and he mentioned he realizes oh um Yep, you'll acquire the blue eyes and a callus beside your lovely nose from the filter tube to your still suit, and you'll bear my sister, Saint Alia of the The Knife.
1: knife. I know, fuck, I love Alia.
0: (laughs) And so he's working through this whole traumatic experience and like awakening of his third eye. Yeah. And his private eye. And he this is where he first sees the almost inevitability of the jihad of the Fremen.
1: I didn't realise how prevalent the jihad is in the book. Because I think the only adaptation I've seen that mentions it at all is the sci fi adaptation. Mm -hmm. And this is And that's
0: because it covers the next two books. Right. Which that's kind of the whole plot.
1: Yeah, this is the first taste we have of the fact that his actions on this planet to save himself and to save his house will tear apart the universe at its seams.
0: And there's... He can see, like, one path. All all the paths point to Jihad. Yeah. But there's a tiny glimmer of a possible path through this that does not result in jihad. Yeah. And that, as soon as he realizes how likely the jihad is, he's like, I can't, I don't want to do that. He says, surely I cannot choose that way. Yeah. Even though it's like all of the paths lead there. Yes, And then uh, Jessica says, the Fremen will give a sanctuary because he's spouting all this stuff yeah. and she can't quite keep up. Right. Cause because he's
1: having like a he's having like a disassociative event where he's yeah. like just saying things out loud as they assault him. You know, yeah. we're gonna be with the Fremen, you're gonna be with the Fremen, we're gonna be with them so long, we literally become part of them. They're gonna give us shelter, you're gonna have my daughter, you're you're gonna have my sister with them. And just like on and on and on, and Jessica's like, hang on, what? The Fremen are going to take us, and he's like, why are you not getting this?
0: He says, that's one of the ways. Yes, they'll call me Luadib, the one who points the way. Yes, that's what they'll call me. And he closed his eyes, thinking, now, my father, I can mourn you. And he felt tears coursing down his cheeks. And that's the end of part one.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Uh what a lot happened in the first part. And I'm glad we're splitting this up because we're at almost two hours. <laughs> <We> <laughs> Just know? on part one. Just <laughs> on part one. I mean, part one is the most uh, dense. It has the most political maneuvering. It has the
0: most... Exposition.
1: Exposition. It It was responsible for getting us in the world, establishing all the power players, establishing the level of complexity that we were going to be dealing with for the rest of the book. And it had all of that on its shoulders. And that way. And it
0: really adequately justifies everything that happens. Right. So that when you get to later in the book and you're like, why are these people just wandering around in the desert with this like nomadic group? What's, what's happened? Why are we fighting so hard for the spice? Yeah. Why, why, why is this all happening? Right. That's all been the foundation has been laid thick. Thick and, and it's, heavy. And yes. heavy. Yeah. And you know, with reinforcement, and it's been allowed to cure in place. Yeah. And we have a solid it, ground upon which we can build the rest of the story. It
1: is usul, which is the strength <laughs> at the base of the pillar. <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, it really, it had a lot. It had to do a lot because. And it
0: executed. Right. Really well. Because
1: he needed to be free in part two and three to just move you through the story without having to explain shit anymore. If you didn't get it in the first part, I hope...
0: go back and read it it again. Sorry,
1: go back, read it again. Because from here on out, it's just, he's pushing the gas pedal to the floor and it's go. We are done reading the signs. We are done reading the map. We are done planning the trip. And now it's time to go.
0: And now the whole feel of the book Shifts.
1: Yeah, it really changes in Muad'Dib because it's um, there was a feeling of inevitability. Everything in the first section felt inevitable. I think that's why he gives us all the information. He tells us who the bad guy is. He tells us who the traitor is. He tells he enumerates all of the parts of the plan because the first part had to feel unavoidable. It had to feel like this was the fruition of so many different political maneuverings. There was absolutely no way to avoid this outcome. And then we, in the second part and third part, are to feel as unsure of what will happen as Paul is. Because Paul is continuously trying to plumb the future to figure out where he's going. And sometimes he can do that and sometimes he can't. And so he wanted the reader to feel that way too. Sometimes you know where you're going. Sometimes you don't know how this is going to turn out. We know ultimately he's going to win because Princess Irulan has told us that multiple times in right. the beginning of every chapter, but we don't know how he's going to get there. It's the uncertainty of how he's going to get there that creates that feeling, more tension, more, more narrative tension in the second and third parts.
0: Right, and I think the tension in the next parts of the book are more what, we know the what his final outcome is going to be, roughly. Right. And the question is What is he going to have to do? What is he going to have to compromise on? What is he going to have to sacrifice to get there?
1: Yeah. Yep. And that's where we leave it for part one. And I think that's where we should leave it for part one. Yeah. Sounds good. Sounds good. So do you want to have the same sign off on our deep cuts?
0: Uh, I don't know. Mm, Now we should come up with something different.
1: We'll be back for our next episode, which will be part two of the first book in the Dune series, which canonically is the first six that were written by uh, Frank. And I think maybe the last one was written by Brian um, or he wrote five. There was intended to be six and he died before he finished. We're reading the first three and we're first talking about the first book. So we read Dune. This was Dune part one. We will be back. Our next episode will be about Dune part two. So we look forward to seeing you next time. Until next time, friends.
0: Bye. Bye.